Hello, I'm James Hurst. Welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, 75 years since VJ Day, we hear from veterans of the campaigns in the Far East. Our war against the Japanese was not similar to the European war. It was completely different. We ask what the legacy of that different campaign has been. What help can the UK military give in the aftermath of the devastating explosion in Beirut? We'll hear from the Mercian Regiment. The line of sight from where we were on deck across to the green side was uh, absolute carnage. It looks like ground zero, there's, there's buildings within the vicinity where the blast was and the, the front of the building is completely gone. Plus, how should the government review the UK's security and defence needs? We'll speak to the former National Security Advisor, Lord Ricketts and US Air Force F-15s in the skies over East Anglia. They go up, they're gonna fly, they're gonna be one versus one, they're gonna battle each other, they're gonna run out of gas, they're gonna land. This Saturday is the 75th anniversary of VJ Day. It marks both the surrender of Japan and the end of the Second World War. The royal family is leading tributes, which include a service of remembrance at the National Memorial Arboretum, a national two-minute silence, and fly-pasts from the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight and the Red Arrows. Tim Cooper looks back on the events that led up to VJ Day. As the Germans were surrendering in May 1945, the war in Europe was ending. Spontaneous celebrations erupted across the UK. But some of the bloodiest and most difficult fighting of the conflict continued unabated in places like Burma against the Japanese. Whilst it, there was an understanding that the war in Europe had finished, it really meant very, very little uh, to the British fighting in Burma. Dr Peter Johnson is from the National Army Museum. You know, these were guys who hadn't been home in months, years in some cases. And so for them, you know, it was very much about the here and now. It was about fighting in Burma. The Japanese Empire was under attack on all flanks. In spite of crippling damage, the United States fleet, augmented by British, Australian and Dutch units, set out to find the enemy. And they knew they'd be in it for the long haul. Nobody assumes that the war's going to end in 1945. Um, the assumption is, is, is definitely going to be there's going to need to be an assault and an attack on mainland Japan itself, on the home islands of Japan. Then this could incur anything up to maybe a million casualties they're expecting. Um, there's British troops going to be put into this, there's Australians, there's Canadians. There are plans to give them all American equipment so they can reduce the logistical burden on that because this is going to require so much effort. Allied forces spearheaded by the vast US Pacific fleets edged closer to the home islands of Japan. But every foot of land captured was won with huge losses. The Japanese dug in. It was drummed into them from an early age that surrendering was worse than dying. Many islands occupied by the Imperial Japanese forces had to be annihilated to be freed. The word kamikaze entered the lexicon, pilots specifically chosen to go on suicide missions. The Allies feared months, if not years, of this before Tokyo would surrender. But then a Boeing B-29 superfortress called Enola Gay dropped the world's first atom bomb on a city called Hiroshima. At 9.15... The bomb is dropped. The aircraft banks away at high speed. Just 50 seconds later, 15 miles from ground zero, 
the Enola Gay is rocked by the blast. A second was dropped on Nagasaki. When the atomic bombs are dropped, you know, there's, there's not really a lot of knowledge about what they are. You know, I know we're very familiar now. We're seeing scenes of mushroom clouds go up and all this sort of stuff. And we've seen the, the pictures of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and, and what happened to them. But at the time, you know, very few people actually saw this and witnessed it. So no one really understood what this was. You know, the idea that you could drop one bomb and wipe out a city was both fantastic but also terrible at the same time. And no, no one really understood what impact that would have. Uh, and even then, the idea that the Japanese would surrender was still amazing to them. But surrender they did. The Second World War was over, but it still had secrets to reveal. Not least the appalling treatment of British prisoners of war at the hands of the Japanese. There were celebrations, but many say they were more muted than for VE Day. The conflict was over, but what next for a world capable of nuclear war? Tim Cooper on the events leading up to VJ Day. We will discuss the wider legacy of those events in a moment. But first, some personal legacies. Veterans of the campaign in the Far East. Claire Sadler has been talking to three members of the Burma Star Association. It is closing and merging into the Burma Star Memorial Fund on VJ Day. We'll hear first from Basil Lambert. Our war against the Japanese was not similar to the European war. It was completely different. In the European war, people knew really what they were doing because they had every equipment, they had everything to help them. As far as we were concerned in the Far East, we were second best. We only got supplies as and when the war office decided that they didn't need them for Europe. War was not a war, it was more like a skirmish in the jungle. If I say that you could be going along a jungle track and next door to you there was another jungle track, then you could be going past a Japanese unit at that time and you wouldn't know the difference. Basil met his wife Madge in Burma. She was there working as a nurse in a Burmese hospital. For six weeks at a time, she'd be sent forwards to deal with the injured from the front lines. So all you did there was work and sleep. You never went or got out of the thing. You were in cam under canvas then. We didn't have bashers or anything there. We were under canvas on the side of a hill. But in that time, casual clearing meant that you were taking boys off the lines who were whatever, lost, lost an arm, lost a leg or whatever. Basil and Madge are amongst the dwindling number of Burma veterans still alive to recount history firsthand. So too is Roy Miller. He was on board aircraft carrier HMS Indomitable, fighting off the suicidal tactics of Japanese pilots. Frightful experience, these kamikaze boys, because they were out to get you. There's no question they were going to die. That was, they'd already, they were already dead as far as they're concerned. Their main concern was to land on them, do as much damage as they can. And my word, they did. Roy Miller talking to Claire Sadler. Well, we're joined now by Professor Paul Rogers, Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, and as always, our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Christopher, we heard veterans saying they, they felt they were not treated in the same way as those who fought in Europe. It wasn't that they'd forgotten, but they hadn't got the great coverage they hadn't got the distinctions of what had been going on in Europe. That was partly because people back in Europe didn't follow it. The places were different. They weren't 
anywhere near as familiar names. Professor Paul Rogers, as we reflect 75 years on, the Far East War was a different war. What do you think that the legacy of that is on the UK's foreign and defence policy? I suppose, in a way, uh, looking back now, the policy has changed so much because uh, until recently, Britain wasn't seeing itself as so much of a global power. In the years after the end of the war in Japan, then you actually had the slow, steady withdrawal from empire. Uh, and that, in a sense, was to some extent influenced by the sheer difficulties of the war against the Japanese. I also think it's a case that as far as the the British idea of this was concerned, it was, as Christopher said, I think very different. For the Americans, the Japanese war was always much more central, not least because of, of Pearl Harbor. As far as the British were concerned, it was really secondary. And to some extent, I mean, that's almost persisted to the present time. If you look at the way that the Second World War is invoked in modern day Britain, it's much more Battle of Britain, D-Day, Dunkirk and the rest. Virtually no mention of the war in the, in the Far East. And that, I think, really is something which has persisted right through to the present time. Isn't the fundamental legacy of what happened in, in the Far East conflict that it created a, a world where nuclear weapons could be a deterrent? That's absolutely true, and it's one of the reasons why I think the, the whole issue of the use of the weapons against uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki is still fraught with controversy. Russia, as Soviet Union, rather, only just come into the war against Japan at a very late stage. It was making very rapid progress. And there are many historians who basically argue that the war was ended very quickly by the use of the weapons, not against military targets, but against basically very large civilian targets, to make sure that the balance of power in the Far East wasn't altered too much by the growing power of the Soviet Union. That, I think, is going to be an argument which will persist for many years. But I would agree with you, the fundamental thing here is that this brought in the nuclear age and the many dangers that it had. We've had some easing of that since the end of the Cold War from 1990 onwards, but that is now returning. And it looks like we are beginning to enter a new era of nuclear instability. And this is, what, 75, 80 years after the, the original use of the weapons against Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Christopher, in international negotiations on, on this kind of thing, it's, it's always US and Russia we hear. China is not involved in the New START Arms Control Treaty. We hear from the US at the moment that China must be involved. Is it going to be involved? Traditionally, nuclear arms control was a bilateral thing between Moscow and Washington. And then some others joined in and said, OK, we will sign up. The question of China is quite different. China refuses to join until America agrees publicly to make large reductions in the numbers of weapons. And the Chinese will say to the Americans, you've got to cut your missiles by a 1,000. The Americans are not going to do that. And it's as simple as that. Christopher, Professor Rogers, stay with us. Let us turn now to a huge and devastating event in the 21st century, uh, the massive explosion in Lebanon. Uh, when a country suffers something like that, it will, of course, turn to its armed forces for help. 
But the forces themselves are not immune from such events. Part of the Lebanese Navy headquarters was destroyed in that blast. So while HMS Enterprise has been surveying the damage to Beirut port itself, three soldiers from 2nd Battalion, the Mercian Regiment, have been assisting the Lebanese Armed Forces, the LAF, providing emergency field kitchens and training. The team is led by Color Sergeant Richard Joins, who told me what the damage from the blast looked like as they sailed into Beirut and when they got on shore. The line of sight from where we were on deck across to the green silo was uh, absolute carnage. It looks like ground zero. There's, there's buildings within the vicinity where the blast was and the, the front of the building is completely gone. All the glass is shitted. There's debris everywhere. Even some of the suburbs out the city centre is taken out. What have you been doing since you arrived there, you and your fellow Mercians? So we got the equipment from the HMS Enterprise and then we moved it down to the Navy HQ. From there we established an area where we could put all the stores. And the next day when we had light, we were then able to establish the catering kitchen, which was the main effort. And the reason for that was because during the blast, the cookhouse around the side of the Navy HQ was completely destroyed. So we were able to um, help with their feeding back here. What's happening on the streets in Beirut and, 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 and around this devastation at the moment? So we were, we were quite lucky to stay away from the protests. We feel like the Lebanese are quite resilient people. And that when a drama's happened in their country, they continue just to get on with it. You've been there, what, since the weekend? Is it a matter of days now that you'll be there? or I think now we've completed our task. We've uh, facilitated well, at least one kitchen and then cascaded the training down uh, to the sailors at the Navy base. And they'll now go forward with uh, publications that we've given them. And also they've talking videos of our lessons, etc. And they can cascade that training further on across the LAF. And we look to get back to uh, Cyprus before the weekend. Colour Sergeant Richard joins in Beirut. This is Sitrep. The images of migrants crossing the channel in small boats have filled our screens this week. More than 4,000 people have successfully crossed the channel so far this year. The Home Office has asked the Ministry of Defence to help make crossings of the dangerous routes in small boats unviable. RAF aircraft have been deployed to support Border Force officers. Admiral Lord West of Spithead, former First Sea Lord and then Security Minister, has told us that the Royal Navy could help with coordination and will always save lives at sea, but he says what is really needed is an agreement with France. All the Navy can do, probably, is to make sure that all of the various craft coming across the Channel are spotted and monitored, um, so it would have much better coverage. And once you've got that coverage and you know everyone is, then whatever deal you come to with uh, either with the French or with how we intend handling them can uh, work that much better. But let's be clear, you're not going to stop the flow coming across as long as British units, whether they be naval, border force, customs and excise, RNLI, Maritime Coast Guard Agency, whoever, pick them up and bring them to the UK. Well, Lord Ricketts, Peter Ricketts, is the former UK ambassador to France from 2012 to 2016. Before that, he was the UK's first national security advisor. Uh, Lord Ricketts, thank you for joining us. Is this question of uh, tackling the migration route through the channel something that the government can manage on its own? 
No, it absolutely cannot. Uh, it has to be done cooperatively with France um, and Belgium because for 15 or 20 years now, we've effectively placed the UK border uh, in Calais uh, and at the Eurotunnel terminal. Uh, that's where you do your passport checks. That's where uh, British police and customs check people through. And it's there that the security needs to be provided. So in a way, the French have been providing security for the British border uh, along the northern French coast for 20 years now. And it is the French who are bearing the burden of responding to this constant effort by asylum seekers to get across the channel without going through British passport checks. Would more British military resources help, though? I don't see this as primarily a task for British military resources. Uh, it's primarily cooperation between British and French law enforcement communities to go after these trafficking gangs that deal in human misery and encourage migrants to make these dangerous crossings uh, over the Channel. I, mean, I think there's a role for the military in terms of helping out the Home Office and Border Force with um, surveillance, reconnaissance particularly, but I really don't see a role for Royal Navy warships in the Channel trying to turn around these small craft. I think that would be dangerous. It would be absolutely against the great traditions of the Royal Navy. While you're with us, we'd like to talk to you about the report just out from the Commons Defence Committee looking at the government's current integrated review of security, defence and foreign policy. Now, you gave evidence to this committee. Uh, this report calling for decisions to be based on a detailed vision for the UK rather than short-term economic considerations. Is that a, a view you share? I do. In a way, I think this is the most important of these reviews um, for many years, because Britain is facing enormous strategic choices at the moment. We've left the EU, uh, the US is changing, we've got adversary states like China and Russia posing more of a threat, and the whole nature of security is changing because we've got uh, public health and climate change uh, also presenting threats to, to our safety and indeed survival. So in those circumstances, I think it's vital that this report goes into depth and also um, contain some choices. Uh, we can't do everything, and I think it needs real political leadership, it's a point made in the report, so that this comes out with clear choices, so that the armed forces and other parts of government have a clear idea of what their priorities are for the next five years. You were involved heavily in the 2010 defence review, and I you know, I hear you mention Russia. That, that defence review document barely mentioned Russia as a threat. I, I, I wonder what else you might have learned from that review that might be useful to consider now. It's really difficult to see what the next but one uh, threat is. We did flag up uh, the risk of pandemics uh, very clearly, but made it one of the top four uh, priorities for the, for the UK in terms of risks and threats. Yes, at that point, Russia uh, looked less of a threat. Putin was not as openly aggressive as he has become since then. Um, and no defence review will accurately predict exactly how the future is going to turn out. But we need to set some priorities. Is it going to be to deal with the competition between great powers? Is it going to be human health, climate change? Are we going to put more effort into cyber resilience for the future? We also need to rebuild the economy um, so that we've got the resources to put into the armed forces and other priorities. All of that needs to go into the mix. It's a very complicated um, set of issues for people to grapple with. I just hope that ministers are putting the time into it in the National Security Council. If I had one regret from the 2010 review we did, is that we probably didn't get enough ministerial time over those first 
months of the new government to really dig deep into the big choices that were in front of ministers. And this time, I really hope they're taking the time to do that. Lord Ricketts, former National Security Advisor. Let's bring back in Professor Paul Rogers and Christopher Lee. Professor Rogers, do you share these concerns that in a time of economic downturn, big economic damage, that is going to make it difficult to do a properly strategic review. I think it is, but I think more worrying than that is the report that's come from the Defence Committee, which is being published today. It really is a very traditional approach. We're now in the middle of a a pretty terrible pandemic. So that is a much more important issue in terms of actual human security. Uh, And beyond that, as uh, Lord Ricketts said very clearly, is you have this much bigger problem in the longer term of climate change, which should be changing all our thinking. It seems to be so concentrated on a traditional view of security that we're missing the bigger picture. The world is changing very quickly. COVID-19 is the early marker. It's a sort of big canary in the coal mine. But the really big one of climate breakdown is only now just beginning to be seen for how dangerous it actually is. And that should be, in my view, almost central to any proper review of Britain's security. Same people giving the same answers to the same questions that you sat through for hours and hours and hours. You've got to spread uh, who you talk to and who you have formal uh, agreements with to, to, to make some sort of alliance because you may have to make the decision that nobody now or nobody in modern times thinks about and that's having to go to a big war again uh, and that is part of what this defence review should be about. Paul Rogers, you worry that this is going to be too, too traditional. We have already seen, for example, though, the government merging the Foreign Office and the Department for International Development. That, that, that is a signal, isn't it, that actually they are prepared to think more radically? Yes, I have to admit, I think that's radically in the wrong direction. I mean, if you look at the crisis we faced in the Middle East, one of the very few areas in all of it where Britain actually has a high spending is the considerable money it's been putting in from DFID to support the refugee resettlements in the region itself. But it's quite clear that the amalgamation of DFID or its incorporation, it's being swallowed up by the Foreign Office, is much more directed uh, in terms of Britain's future trade policy and political status and far less on the humanitarian side. I would agree it's radical, but I think it's radical in the wrong direction. Paul Rogers, thank you for your time. Professor Paul Rogers, Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies at Bradford University. Uh, Christopher, stay with us. Now, the US Air Force is into its third day of intensive flying, the so-called surge from RAF Lakenheath. The base's squadrons of F-15 fighters are currently flying a vast number of training sorties, all designed to ensure they're combat ready. From Suffolk, Simon Newton reports. Thundering down the runway, the might of the US Air Force, as wave after wave of F-15s took to the skies above Suffolk, to the delight of hundreds of aircraft enthusiasts. For three days, the 48th fighter wing is being tested to check it's ready to fight. These pilots flying mission after mission to practice simulated aerial combat and fast refuels. Colonel Jason Camaletti is the wing commander. The purpose of the surge is really to exercise the entire muscle of, uh, of our flying operation. What we are looking to do is to fly maximum number of sorties over the next three days to really see if both the operation side and the maintenance side, as well as the support and logistical side with the fuel trucks, can keep pace. 
Uh, we haven't done one in my two uh, plus years being here, and it's an opportunity again to fly maximum sorties. Lakenheath is home to three fighter squadrons armed with 75 F-15s. During the COVID lockdown, much of their training was done in the simulator. And for the pilots taking part in this surge, the flying is intense. Call it 10 front lines, and out of those 10 front lines, they're going to go up, they're going to fly, they're going to be one versus one, they're going to battle each other, they're going to run out of gas, they're going to land, they're going to hot pit refuel, so when they do that, they shut down one engine, they hook up a fuel uh, line, they fill it up, go again, they're going to do that three times, then they're going to shut down, the pilot's going to come out, the maintenance is going to inspect the airplane, they're going to put another pilot in the jet, and they're going to do that three more times. With most of the UK's air shows cancelled this year, the chance to see this many jets up close has proved a big draw. Richard Greenaway has been spotting planes for 20 years and travelled from Worcester in the Midlands to see the surge in action. It's just an hobby I picked up when I was a kid. My mate's brother was in the Air Force and he used to go to the bases and I used to follow them to go to the air shows with him. See Tathan and stuff, it was brilliant. And I picked it up from there. there. Yeah. Are you hearing one taking off now, aren't you? Yeah, one coming down now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you do your thing. Okay, cheers, mate. Hello, welcome to Channel 5, have a great day. Stuff on push five, see you, thanks. For these enthusiasts, Lake and Heath will soon have another big draw. From next year, American F-35 Lightnings will be based here too. Commanders here have apologised to local residents for any extra noise during the surge and are promising no low-level sorties or night flying. This a short burst of daytime activity to ensure the Liberty Wing is ready and able to face any adversary. Finally this week, Let's finish where we started as we head to the anniversary of VJ Day this weekend. One of the most famous depictions of the war in the Far East is the film The Bridge on the River Kwai. You British prisoners have been chosen to build a bridge across the River Kwai. Filmed in the 50s, the story is set in a Japanese prisoner of war camp in Burma where prisoners are made to build a railway bridge. Now letters have emerged from the National Archives showing just how unhappy the War Office was with the script of the film, which is based on the novel by Pierre Boulle. Sarah Castagnetti is the Visual Collection Team Manager at the National Archives. Initially, they thought that they might want to film in Singapore, and there was a military, a British military presence in Singapore, and they wanted to just kind of suss out whether they might be able to use facilities, possibly troops. But then the War Office raised concerns. What were those concerns? It wasn't very long after the end of the Second World War, and they were quite sensitive to the fact that the British, particularly the British commanding officer, was being portrayed in a way that they felt really made him look like a collaborator. Obviously, they didn't like that and they were aware that there would be other people who would object to it and they, they just felt um, it would not be popular with the British public. So obviously they were concerned not really to put their weight behind the film, although in the end what happened was Spiegel decided not to film in Singapore. He decided to film in Sri Lanka. So he didn't really require an enormous amount of support from the War Office. But it wasn't just the War Office, was it? There were other people who didn't didn't like this. Particularly, there was a representative of the, of the Far Eastern Prisoners of War Association, who was, I think, Lieutenant General Arthur Percival. He himself had been held prisoner of war. He personally was the um, person who surrendered to the Japanese in Singapore. And he, on behalf of his members, raised concerns with the War Office, saying that, you know, this reflected really badly on them. 
they really objected to the way that the British were being portrayed, and you can totally understand why. There was talk of a disclaimer being put on the end of the film. That's right. So Percival and the War Office, between them, drafted some disclaimers. What they intended was for them to be shown at the beginning of the film and again at the end of the film. And the disclaimers that Percival and the War Office had drafted were really rather lengthy and, you know, I'm not surprised that Spiegel didn't use them because it kind of took away from the effect of the film, saying, you know, if, you know, this is complete fiction and, you know, doesn't represent anything to do with the, the reality. And Spiegel, in the end, just cut back on that um, disclaimer, made it really minimal. And by the time it was agreed, it was the night before the premiere, so there was really very little room for manoeuvre. So he agreed to that minimised line on the on the film, but then in the end, it was only shown briefly in London, perhaps for the first few weeks. It wasn't shown anywhere outside of London, and then they just stopped showing it altogether. Sarah Castagnetti from the National Archives. Christopher, it, it does illustrate, doesn't it, the, the difficulty. War films, so often they are fictional stories, but set inside real events that have been intensely personal to the people who've lived through them. And they're good films. Do you know, it doesn't always work. My old man, who was at Dunkirk, and he was wounded at Dunkirk, uh, and I saw the film Dunkirk, and I saw the character who was supposed to be my father going off into a boat quite strongly and happily. And I said to him later on, he was supposed to be lying, bleeding to death, half to death, on the beaches of northern France. I said, what happened? I told all the kids at school, you're a hero. Oh, he said, well, he said they wanted one more to get into the boat. And they said, right, you, in the boat. And that was it. He said, but it doesn't matter. He said, it's the event that matters. Christopher, fascinating as always to hear from you. Thank you for your time this week. Thank you to all my guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us. We are on Twitter at BFBS SITREP. You can subscribe and never miss an episode of the podcast, bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.